the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital, who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life, oftentimes we, we feel as if we're kind of groping about, and we're, we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today, and Ted, it's always great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels emotionally and and spiritually. Kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, We're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with the sense of where God, why God? Yeah, we really do. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. These are these are existential questions. You know, these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence, and um, they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about God. And um, you know, as as I prepared for the show tonight, I, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I was I was talking it over and, and praying about it with my wife, and I was reminded of the verse in First Thessalonians that says. You know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, and you know, but we still grieve. You know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this, or, or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside, I mean, you're grieved. And I'm reminded of the the doctrine of total human depravity. You know, the idea that that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts, and that there's no hope for us, and there's there's nothing good apart from Christ. And I think. You know, what what you take from this event, I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can, and, you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental slash military finagling going on. And, and on one hand, you, you root for that and you're, you're hopeful that something will be done. But, you know, as Christians, we know that um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really, there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that, that Obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better. So, you know, I think for us, 
maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to, to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, much of my book deals with that, you know, this idea that, you know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we we're reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it, it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us. Um, uh, but he does find us. He does seek us out and he does give us the opportunity to, to humble ourselves and, and find joy and peace in him. You know, what you say, I know even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now, we, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent to your observations, and yet oftentimes isn't there that disconnect that we experience, meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of uh, coldly in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is, you know, man's depravity, it is separation of God, from God by, by sin, it is our inclination to do wrong and evil and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that, and we can certainly, in many ways, kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday into those categories. We give complete, total mental assent to those realities. And yet there's this disconnect where emotionally, though, we're still saying, but wait a minute, God. I mean, aren't you supposed to come in and kind of, you know, save the day? Uh, We look at this and say, well, you know, of all the people that died yesterday, uh, three all told, why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy? And suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with God over these things. Yeah, we are, you know, and I, I... I fully agree, and I think, you know, for those of us who, who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I I spent a lot of years just intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them, and there's this this strange tension in the church where, you know, you're you're clinging to truth, and you have biblical truth, but yet you, you still want to experience things. You want to feel comforted, and, you know, for me... Uh, I think the Bible is full of, of of examples of people who, you know, cling to cling to Christ and cling to cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them. And on one level, you 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 don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how you know King David who. You know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer, and he has the audacity and the and the courage really to ask God for a clean heart, and then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is, you know, when people are pursuing him and and chasing after him to take his life. You know, he even he even clings to to the Lord for joy in that. And you know, as to how that comforts. You know, someone who's who's grappling with the reality of yesterday. I don't know, but I'm but I'm glad it's there, and I'm glad, you know, the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that. And I I found, I mean, my experience has been um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that. And you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know, God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening. Um, but but that feeling of joy and peace even in the midst of uh, of life's terrible storms i mean that's something that uh experientially we can 
we can look to the Lord and just say thank you. There's and, one thing, though, that tends to kind of complicate this, and after a brief time out, I want to kind of dig deeper. We, we spoke of the, the, the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from God's perspective, from God's Word. Then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go uh, go into, where we, we understand intellectually what's going on, and yet emotionally still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief. The third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is the big cover-up. And we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. Best-selling author Ted Kluck is with us today, a look at finding God in the dark. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Kluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes... um, being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain. But, you know, painting on the smile and and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When, in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of uh, peace and relief that we seek. Yeah, I think it absolutely does, and I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years, you know. The issues were different for me in that, you know, our our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation-related failures that I was experiencing, and instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross and those things, for a lot of years I just got more bitter, you know, more bitter, more cynical, um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and, you know, I was, I was everybody's buddy and, and the back slapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody. But inside I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who, uh, would put me through this quite frankly was, was my thought process. And, um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church. Um, it was tough to go to church, and it was tough to see everybody else, I thought, prospering, you know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought. But um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit uh, pursued me out of that. I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that right on the cusp of, of everything coming together, um, your, uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who, who was literally the, the, the sister of, of one of your adopted boys, uh, the, mm-hmm. another couple stepped in and the law did what it did, uh, thousands of miles away. And that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of pain 
in your life, and I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They will all tend to kind of want to be uh, happy and, and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak. And yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain. Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents and you know from being in christian media and christian entertainment as i am you know there there is this often kind of creepy you know motivation to self-promote and um i find i found myself doing a ton of that you know uh again on facebook my facebook persona was you know i was this happy successful guy with a great family and um you know all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening but you know, for anybody who knew me then or, or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder, and just said, look, I'm I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter. And uh, I need your help. You know, um, thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and, uh, and and kind of led me to do that, because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the, the circumstances are the same, essentially, um, but, but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that, so I'm thankful. What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight? Yeah, you know what? I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places. And uh, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches you know, the, the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own, you know, dark places. So hopefully it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a simple presentation of the gospel, you know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that He'll lift us up, you know, and He'll um, He'll redeem us and He'll give us peace and He'll give us you know the the clean hearts and the and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm fifty one and you know I think in in different ways and in different struggles um, Ronnie and I have both uh, experienced that and we wanted to you know to write the book as a really an outpouring of thanks to uh, to a Lord who would who would do that for us you know a couple of really sinful screwed up guys. We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord. And I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers, but from a sincere standpoint, as as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and, and asking the why God questions as well, what, what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark? I think keep asking and keep seeking, and, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will find you. You know, I, I think, you know, we serve a Lord who, who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to, you know, to, to, to come after us at times. And, you know, I think if, if people are asking questions, that's a great sign. You know, I don't think you, I don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions. And, 
you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the church where you're just so, sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up and um, everything will be great for you. But, you know, it really wasn't until Ronnie and I started, ask, started asking those hard questions that, um, that we got any peace. And um, so I would say keep asking. I would say, you know, search for truth. I mean, I think we're, we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to, to be journeying and never arrive anywhere. Um, it's cool to be a seeker, but not a, a, a pursuer of truth. But I would say, you know, seek hard after truth in Scripture and, uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you. A look at finding God in the dark. Ted Kluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is recently published by, i got to get my cheaters on here, boy. Reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Bethany House Publishers, and you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at tedcluck, K-L-U-C-K dot com. And our thanks again to Ted Cluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think about your relationship with others... So much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God Shaped Brain. Now Dr. Tim Jennings is a board certified Christian psychiatrist and master psycho pharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4.8, that whatever the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science and brain science is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of uh, 
of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, you know, the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers, so you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and, uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not, and I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly, those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God based on maybe the the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God. You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator, who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and things changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to impose rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that, that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our, our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's, uh, what's uh, striking is that m- most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, uh, somebody in a Wiccan camp w- w- worshiping, you know, white witchcraft. And these, they would 
be, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking though is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind as Jesus revealed him, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God and, and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in, in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I um, was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have, down on those who do look on God as somehow being, un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way. And so they really challenged us, and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept. And uh, these ideas were very challenging for me, and I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that that sustain God's word and not have to simply say, well, I believe and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship, in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment? Uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint uh, on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even is a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, who is self-sacrificial, beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I have had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. 
So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors and this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chron- chronic fear and anxiety going. Whereas if you come back to the knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the interesting of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong and it doesn't go your way and it doesn't feel good and you just don't you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything I wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself we're exploring that equation a look at the God-shaped brain how changing your view of God transforms your life Written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give mental assent to this around the, around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about... Philippians 4 8, a passage of scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things are honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to, to meditate? Um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally, and yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus. But it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real 
real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here and now. Mm. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, We know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us. Uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that, that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely, and I, and this is what we've shown in, in the in the uh, from the science and from the in the book is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear, and so there's actually neurobiologically there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man, they lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever is for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children, if their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical. Love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten Son on our behalf. And we, we some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know, drug-crazed, alcoholic-driven, uh, abusive father. And so the notion of being able to equate a loving Heavenly Father who sacrifices His Son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with Him is antithetical to their, to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right. And that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. We talk about this notion in Scripture of bringing our thoughts into captivity. How can we rewire all of this? Um, This is a great point. And um, I I point out in the book 
that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that are influences of proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF, and that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So probeating after the weed killer is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger, the circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then the enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory and you keep practicing, you're firing the circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme is produced and you get more of the fertilizer and it expands and you keep doing it and the circuitry grows and then one day you graduate and 20 years go by and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior, but can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit, you're still producing the enzyme, you're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger, and so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect, oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or, or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So if if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and, and as a result um, has, has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships we mentioned a moment ago, how do we retrain that process? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, in our book, we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence, and we've and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture, 
All scripture is given by God for inspired, inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. The scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then scripture alone without the other two, I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But when we hold those other distorted concepts, we actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the... the uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. 